Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I talk to Carol Cohn, social purpose pioneer and chief executive officer at Carol Cohn on Purpose. So with us today is Carol Cohn, and Carol has been a pioneer in the purpose space for the last 40 years. I don't mean to embarrass you, Carol. 40? You've been around Not forever. 40. That's what makes forever. me too old. <laughs> she founded and grew Cohn Sorry. Communications, which became the US's leading cause branding agency, um, then joined Edelman and grew their business plus social purpose practice into the biggest probably in the world. And she recently launched her latest agency, Carol Cohn on Purpose and the Purpose Collaborative. Uh, which is a curated network of the best organizations, issue experts, and talent in purpose in the world. And which you are, you yeah. are part of the Purpose Collaborative. So it, it's lovely go. to have your expertise. Thank you, Carol. You're welcome. Um, and another, I was just about to say, full disclosure, 17 Sports, a member of the Purpose Collaborative. And I must also um, blame you, Carol, for the fact that I do what I do, because uh, <laughs> right back in the early days, uh, your writing and your research inspired me to get into the call. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so it's your fault. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? If you read what's extraordinary is, you know, I'm you know listening to every little tidbit out of Davos and, you know, the recent business roundtable declaration and Larry Fink, who, you know, first he talked about purpose. Now he's talking about climate. I mean, I'm living to see the day. You know, when I started doing this work in the 80s, it was very lonely. Mm -hmm. And so what's so exciting now is, you know, to inspire individuals like yourself and so many others because there needs to be really, really good purpose work done that's strategic, that's, um, that's going to last long term, that's going to innovate and the things that we're seeing some of the big big commitments by companies like microsoft's um, commitment to not only go carbon neutral but to, to go backwards in time to negate all their carbon footprint is extraordinary it is amazing isn't it yeah yeah it is so um it's exciting times there's a tremendous amount of innovation i know that young people everywhere i, I give so much advice which is they want, they want to know how do they get into the field. So maybe we'll touch on that later. Yeah. But that's actually a great segue to the, to the first question I wanted to ask you, which I, I'd like to go right back to the beginning, Carol, when you, <laughs> when you first started working. How, how did you end up in marketing in the beginning? I mean, what well, I, I think, yeah, it's more than marketing. So let me just start there. But people always said, like, why do I do what I do? And my purpose which I was very fortunate to find early on is to help others re refine, define, refine, focus on their purpose and make it real. And whether it's companies, whether it's individuals, not for profits, et cetera. Um, and I do it because <clears throat> I grew up during the very, very turbulent sixties and seventies I was just old enough. I mean, really, really, I was like, you know, first grade when President Kennedy was shot, 
Martin Luther King was shot, Bobby Kennedy was shot, and, and you know, the country was burning, you know, in terms of civil rights. And so um, I had a fairly liberal family. I went to a very, very uh, liberal university. I went to Brandeis University. And um, there was a little teeny tiny window that most people don't know called the years of the student strike. And we went out on strike because of uh, Vietnam War. And so I always say that um, I did march in Washington. I was part of at Brandeis. They had this thing called the National Strike Information Center. And we wrote press releases. I had no idea what those were. But we had information from around the country of what all these students were doing. And we shared it. And, you know, I, I had a very visceral sense of collective action. Um, I didn't burn any buildings, but again, I did march on Washington. And so that was part of my upbringing. And so when I finally got serious in my late 20s about, you know, what do I want to do with my life and a job, um, I got a master's in communications. And I worked for a PR firm for three years, and then I said, I can do this better. And I started Cone Communications. And the first few years, it was about communications and PR, and mostly for sporting goods, Neil. Mm -hmm. I represented the foremost sporting goods, Solomon Ski Equipment. I mean, one of the best innovators, some of the best years of my life. You know, all the great products, all the innovations. I was the only woman skiing with all the guys. It was pretty funny. Um, and from there, the Rockport Chew Company came to us and they wanted to grow. And basically, long story short, it took a year, but we figured out that walking was their essence. And that was my first social impact initiative. I found the insight that Rockport Chews were great for walking. We linked them uh, to walking for health and fitness. We had a guy who walked around the country. Um, he talked to kids. He said, you know, eat properly, don't smoke and walk. We did walking research, we did walking books, and we codified walking as a health and fitness activity. And it was all intuition. It was, I felt that this company made an amazing shoe. I searched, because I'm very curious, to find a way to promote them with authenticity and with newness, with a breakthrough idea. Um, and we just basically, I turned to the CEO and I said, we're going to, you're going to be the leader of a walking movement. And he went, what? And I went, trust me. And, you know, it was a lot of to and fro, a guy named Bruce Cates, fabulous. But, you know, Rockport grew from an unknown $20 million company in five years to $150 million. Walking became a, a national new fitness activity. Um, Reebok, unfortunately, went after Rockport and bought them. But... You know, I continue with Rockport, but then we work with Reebok. And we help Reebok um, support human rights and the Amnesty World Tour because they wanted something that was affinity to young people. And that was extraordinary. And we created Reebok Human Rights Awards with Sting and Peter Gabriel. And I got to dance with Bruce Springsteen uh, during the Amnesty Tour. It was, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and, you know, Reebok did that, did their human rights programs and we created not just the sponsorship because that was short term it was six weeks we created the Reebok human rights awards given to young people under the age of 30 for nonviolent acts of human rights years years ahead of any of that happening in the popular culture which happens today and our early work was years before the internet 
Um, but it was so exciting. And, you know, we were, we were at the beginning of, there was, again, this intuition of link a company authentically with a social issue that's important to their employees, their customers, their consumers. Those are the first two. And then we did Heinz and Saving the Modern American Family. We did syndicated public, public affairs TV. We did uh, PNC and early childhood education. Okay, we did and breast cancer. So long, long, long answer. Sorry. That's okay. I just want to stop you a second there. So I guess at the time, I mean, one of the other novel features of your approach was this idea that good, that business could actually be a force for good in the world. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. when did that, when did that start of dawn on you? Uh, Cause I'm sure that wasn't, that wasn't standard thinking or standard practice at that time. There was no, no, nobody was. I mean, I, the joke I say is that it, that it was me and American Express at the time, um, really, you know, linking a company and a social issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but for what I, purpose? For what purpose? Mm-hmm. To grow. To me, it was always a win-win. Yep. It was to grow the company and enhance sales, but have a different story, have a real authentic story that would be told, would be engaging, you know, getting people to walk. Millions of people got a whole new, you know, fitness regime, um, you know, even on breast cancer. I mean, people didn't talk about breasts. It was 1993. And how could Avon selling little products, how could they have a different relationship with their million associates and their millions of customers? And it was all, it was largely intuition. I just knew, you know, (laughs) I love brands and I love positioning and I love marketing. And my intuition was give them a real story to tell, give them a way to engage that is meaningful and I just did it because it felt right. And I loved doing it. Um, and we just kept doing more and more and more. People, we were the only ones out there doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did, then I did research. I did research in 1993, the Cone Roper Report. And I went to Roper and um, they were doing, their research at the time was an hour interview with 2,000 people face-to-face. Cost a fortune. But I said, I want to create something like there, were, there had been a report called the Green Gauge Report. It was the most comprehensive environmental research at the time. I said, I want to do that. And the, at the time, they called it cause marketing. I want to do that for companies and causes and consumers. What do people feel? What is good? What is bad? Et cetera. And we did it. Cost a fortune. I kind of had to like, you know, uh, I had to put a second mortgage on my home almost. And um, it was, you know, 66% of consumers said after price and quality being equal that they would likely, not absolutely, but likely switch to a product engaged with a cause. And we broke into the New York Times and then Business Week and on and on. And then I did reports and I gave them away and then I gave speeches. And again, we had to invest in this as a strategy because nobody believed it would work. Yeah, yeah. So as you fast forward to today, and, and that, that term, cause marketing, has evolved into purpose. Yes. So how, how have you seen, what have, have there been obvious phases of that evolution process over the last 25, 20 years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Cause marketing was, it was the general term. I was making it embedded in the company, but the term was cause marketing. Then we changed the term to cause branding. 
that a company like Avon would take breast cancer and brand Avon with that. And, you know, it was funny. My friend Sharon Cohen from Reebok said, why don't you call it something else? And I said, I can either invest in doing the work or I can invest in changing the term. I'm going to invest in doing the work because we need really good cases. And so then you started hearing shared value and social responsibility and CSR or just being good. And then most recently, probably the purpose really in terms of a term started popping up, I think five or six years ago. And when I left, and we actually, when I was at Edelman leading their global practice, we called it business plus, plus side, social purpose. So it was probably, you know, 2012, 13 or 14. When I left Edelman in 2015 to go back to being an entrepreneur, I named my company in a day, Carol Cohn on purpose. Double entendre, people needed to know that I was, you know, an entrepreneur again, but on purpose was about what this was being called. And purpose also has a very many iterations. I mean, we define it as, you know, why an organization exists beyond profits. And we say it should be based in humanity. Um, and purpose today is, people are talking about it all over. I just heard a webinar today from the Harvard Business Review from uh, you know, an academic, the latest purpose research. I actually do have new purpose research coming out um, soon. Um, and I have done a major study every other year for my entire career, whether it was with Cone, I did it with um, Ketchum, I did it with Sustainable Brands. Uh, my next one's coming out with the ANA and um, Harris. So, so Karen, I think- what's that, the, So what's, what's the defining difference between purpose and what's come before it? That's a great question. Purpose is really more about why does an organization exist? And when it is practiced authentically and deeply as strategy, it will help to, it will create alignment internally. It will provide many important reasons to employees and stakeholders to engage. It will be a lens that drives innovation, culture, social engagement. So it is, I call it the golden thread that ties when a company or brand understands why they exist, they exist beyond just selling stuff. Right. And so, so it's about a strategy. It's about, it's a business strategy. It's an organizational strategy. It is not a siloed, the foundation's going to, focus on something or the marketing department's going to add a cause, which is more siloed and tactical. This is more about strategy, integrated strategy. Right. Yeah. We always say that uh, purpose is a business conversation. There you go. Yep. Um, it, it's amazing. So it also um, expands the aperture of what a company or brand can do. You know, it, it's, it's that old adage, um, I think with the years ago when I talked about the, you know, what do the railroads do? You know, do the railroads, you know, take you from A to B or was it, you know, certainly advancing your abilities to travel and see the world, you know, up to bigger, bigger, bigger aspiration. And when you open the aperture and you drive it into behaviors and KPIs and such, it creates much more opportunity for an organization. And the exciting thing today is that companies that are, you know, only getting 1%, 2% growth, if they start 
looking back and saying, why do we exist? And then look forward to refine it. It opens up their marketplace for tremendous new products, innovation, relationships, loyalty, commentary. And and so it's very exciting. So, so I know you consult to a lot of large corporates and organizations. What are the, what are the top three things that you're, that you're preaching in 2020? (laughs) The top three things. Um, that every company needs to understand why it exists. What is your purpose? There, there'll be some, there'll be the laggards. You know, we're in the middle of the bell curve now. You've got the early adopters. That, you know, by the way, I, I grew up around Ben and Jerry's and Anita Roddick and Tom Chappell, Tom's of Maine and uh, Jeffrey Hollander. I mean, I grew up with all of those guys. So uh, we were contemporaries. And so those are the purpose at the center companies because their founders wanted to do that. Yeah. They had intuition. Today, companies and leaders recognize to get their, the best and the brightest to work for them, to get people excited to jump out of bed and show up to work and to really push the envelope. They need to have this incredible North Star that says, you know, it's, don't laugh, but, you know, Walmart, save money, live better. You know, Airbnb, belong. Um, you, you know, Unilever, you know, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. It's not just sell more stuff. It's what is our role in the world? And so um, ask your question again, because I always go on a tangent. So I was just interested in what are the top three things that you're telling to, that you're preaching at the moment, okay. people who are considering this move to Well, I would say that companies to grow as their growth strategy, the purpose is a powerful growth strategy, one. Two, it needs to be absolutely authentic. Um, you cannot put a pink ribbon on things. It is hard work to discover, but it's worth the journey. And then the third thing is the number one stakeholder for your purpose are your employees. They are the engine of your company. They should be deeply involved in understanding how they view the company. What should your, what should your purpose be? The more that you engage them in discovering it and then add and then knowing that it's not just about making widgets, but how these widgets have a role in society or the environment, then it gets really, really interesting. And then you got to, you know, you got to like execute really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the other thing. This, this isn't like, you know, make it up in a room, put it on a wall and then go to go do the next thing. Far from it. So just to build on the authenticity uh, topic a little bit. We've seen a lot of, and you mentioned this already um, at the beginning of the interview, the, every, everybody seems to be jumping on the purpose bandwagon. And so I right. the authenticity thing is more important than ever. Right. So what's your view on like the business roundtable and what's happening in Davos and what's happening at BlackRock? Sure. Do you think these are, are authentic? Do you think that these are authentic commitments, desires to move in this direction? Or do you think they're just driven by opportunism and trends because that's ah great comment. First of all, I think that the business what's happening is there's a shift. It's all about the shift in capitalism, and that you know the top one percent owns. I think I saw fifty percent of uh, of the you know wealth in the world. Yeah, I think it's higher. The inequities are huge. So capitalism isn't working and people are, you know, whether it's employees striking or people in the streets striking or they refuse to buy, 
So the change is there. Um, the number one thing you didn't ask me really driving all this is the internet <clears throat> and everybody having, you know, a, a, you know, everyone's a broadcaster. So, so that really, you, you can't run, you can't hide, you can run, but you can't hide. <clears throat> so the, the thing is though, it's not declaring your purpose. It's acting on it. <laughs> there you go. That's a big and difference. if you're going to do show notes, I wrote a really good piece on um, was post can and it was about, you know, now is a purpose is a verb and you need to act. So, you know, the question on the business round table is what are those companies going to do? And <clears throat> how are they going to be held accountable? I think there's a lot of great measurement organizations out there. I think individuals hold them accountable. Um, I think there's so much choice out there that the companies that are really true, I, I, what I'm really um, excited about is Microsoft. And I have a very interesting history with Microsoft. Um, during the DOJ years, when uh, they were trying to break it up, not one organization came to stand up for Bill Gates. And, you know, they started out with a purpose, you know, to put a computer on everyone's desk. But, you know, he was so singularly focused on sales, sales, sales and growing the company. He did not recognize that there was a great, nobody knows this, there was a great cover story in Business Week with him and Warren Buffett in, in stools. And kind of the headline says, we will not give our money away until we die. And, you know, fast forward now, and the Gates Foundation is extraordinary. Buffett's given most of their fortune to the Gates Foundation to execute. So, you know, times change. Um, so I think that action, I think that, Dov, I think that Larry Fink, thank you, Larry Fink, you know, he's managing over, what, three, four trillion dollars. It's trillion. Uh, yeah, he, he's, I really would love to know the backstory of why he finally got religion. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, I think it's um, sometimes it's a grandchild or a child or shaming or naming or something like that. I, I really don't know that backstory. I think right now his third letter, which is about, and I think it's interesting because he's now tying risk, the risk of organizations to the environment. And if you look at a lot of, for example, the insurance companies and what they're going through, um, from, you know, all of the hellacious weather and storms, hurricanes and fires and this and that, and, and you know, they're, they're not going to survive. So I think that the, you know, accounting for risk within a valuation of a company, that's, a, that's what a, a great investment manager does. Mm -hmm. So that was really, really helpful. I think the fact of Australia burning as it is in the polar ice caps and, you know, the Australia burning. I also think Greta Thunberg is unbelievable. And I think that we are so fortunate to have such a powerful, focused young woman out there because you need a face. Yep. But when you don't have a face on these issues, it's like, oh yeah, right. You know, the dead zone in the Gulf. Yeah, right. You know, uh, so she's been a great face and, you know, she stands up to Trump, which is great. But you've got, it's a confluence of events. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I was out there in the 80s and the 90s alone. American Express, we were alone. Now there's this, you know, we were like, maybe there was a quartet. Now it's giant symphonies. 
talking about this, which is really great. And you've got some great, you know, Microsoft again. So I talked about, so the DOJ, you know, they're fighting him. They called us in as a firm. We had 30 people at this conference table. We talked about what we do, you know, lawyers and public affairs people and whatever. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And we told them about so cause branding at the time. And we, they said, thank you. We went to the airport. They called us up and said, you're hired. And so we helped them with some positioning um, at the time. And then they took it in-house and kind of watered it down. But then, you know, fast forward, I don't know, 15 years later, I'm at Edelman. It's one of their largest clients. And, you know, they're doing all these incredible things, but they want them to be much more powerful. And they brought us in. It was really hard because they had B2B, B2C, government contracts. This had to impact the business. And we created something called YouthSpark, which had a, you know, it was a social purpose, aligning all the things they're doing into one. But their goal was to advance the STEM knowledge of 300 million, million youth around the globe. And, you know, and now, you know, you look what Microsoft's doing with Satya Nardella, who I love it that Fortune said he's the most underrated CEO. The guy is amazing. His book is just extraordinary. Um, and he's got this incredible soul. And, and I don't know if people know this, but one of the reasons I think he has that, I mean, one, he's Indian, so that, that gives him a different point of view, but he also has a child with special needs. Yep. And so he's got more empathy. And so you know, the things that Microsoft are, you know, is doing from Microsoft philanthropies to their, you know, to their adaptive controller that won everywhere in can two years ago. So kids with, you know, maybe one arm or no hands could play games. They recognize that there is a business opportunity that you can do with soul. And now the fact that they're going to go and they're going to, you know, change their their policies regarding their carbon footprint, not just now, but going backwards. That's amazing. And they were just named on Just Capital's, you know, most just, the Just 100, the number one company. Yeah. And I think Fortune Most Admired, they were like number three or four. So it's an amazing journey. They're, they're a great, same thing with Walmart. I mean, we were at Walmart's door when they were the most hated company, really, in the country. And we work with a foundation. And now look what they're doing today. The, you know, the $15 wage, they're raising that. Their, their foundation is amazing. They're doing extraordinary things. They're not perfect. There's no perfection in this work. But if you keep advancing towards a goal that's credible and building off your, your core competencies, that's the journey. That's what we need now because our problems around the globe are too friggin' big. So let's... Um take the, the conversation in a, in a slightly different direction now and just to build on what you've spoken about this being a journey mm -hmm. evolution of of this practice from cause marketing through to to purpose today yeah. I mean, our, our observation is that the business of sport is is lagging behind the business sector in its adoption of purpose it's still very much caught in the in the sort of traditional csr um, mindset and mentality Right. Um, so I don't know whether one whether you'd agree with that from what you've seen from the outside, but you know what, what's your what's your view on because the, the book is obviously written for was aimed at um, skilling executives that are up, that are working in sport with sport, right. knowledge to be to be more purposeful in terms of how they manage their investments in sport. Right. So as an outsider looking into sport, um, I mean, because I think you I, I think of you as a business first person. Um, mm -hmm. what are your observations of, of sport 
um, when it comes to purpose and as a platform for brands to activate around and, and to use to, to amplify their purpose messaging? Well, I, I think that as a platform, it's phenomenal because sport is, it's reality TV, every single game. You know, it, it's, it's um, every single event. Um, it, it's, there's a tremendous amount, the huge amount of humanity in it. The question, and, and I think that there's, that sport has had, I mean, going back, you know, in the early 80s, I had the largest sporting goods practice of any firm ever. I'd go to the sporting goods show with 10 clients. So, you know, and I also am an athlete. My, my great sport, since I'm little, is horses. And I was national show jumping champion. And so I know what it's like to jump. And I know it's like to get bucked off and get kicked and stuff like that and get back on the horse. I love sports. I think it's been late. I think that sport largely lived off of fandom and the passion of the fans and such. And, and some of the, you know, actually wild and often outrageous uh, athlete celebs. But I think the shift is a lot of it's coming from the athletes themselves. I think perhaps less from the owners, um, the athletes and the fans, because I think that there is, a there is a recognition of the responsibility of that which they have been given. And many of these athletes are younger. Um, I think that hopefully their mothers are saying, hey, you know, you just can't take all this money and fame. You got to give back. And there's more and more and more giving back. So I think, again, a lot of companies today that are like in the middle and trying to decide, well, is it authentic or is it like just a pink ribbon? Their employees are pushing them. You know, you saw the Google walkout and, and others. Consumers are marching or choosing to buy from. So I think that... Um, and, you know, we need new um, heroes to emulate. And I think, you know, the Colin Kaepernick situation with Nike was great. I think that, that Nike has, you know, Nike can be a bad boy. You know, Nike had the sweatshop problem. I mean, most of your listeners probably don't even know about that. But, you know, they were tarred with, you know, having kids under, you know, single age kids, eight, nine, seven years old, you know, making their products. And that was, that hurt their, you hurt them massively um, years and years ago. And so Nike had to, you know, learn the hard way, but I think that they've recognized that there's a humanity that even a, a celebrity athlete must do. Now, and show, um, and the ones that are doing it well are raising a lot of funds and for lots of different causes um, and in an authentic way. Uh, I think that the bigger, the things that's disappointing to me are the, there's so much money in a league, in a team, in an event, in a venue that, that, you know, I think that, and with the work that you're going to be, that you're doing in the past and you're going to be more of really helping owners and venues and leagues and teams to understand how to do this more strategically and tie it into their brand I think that there's a there's a there's a wonderful upside there, and I think that young people especially need they need heroes, and heroes need to be. It's more than just winning the game. It's how you got to the game, how you left the game, how you conducted yourself, and I think that um, it, you know sport is catching up, which is great. I think that um, the newer sports, you know, esports, which is crazy, and then. Uh, first robotics, you know, STEM, that there's new definition of sports 
And I think that that's exciting because I think these, these new definitions, leagues uh, are, are going to can write the rules and they can jump. They don't have to go through all those arduous years of not standing for something. The other thing, you know, years ago, I was invited by the NBA to go to one of their league meetings, and it was all of their community relations folks. And we were down in North Carolina at uh, Carolina Speedway. We got to drive around in, you know, some of the stock cars and stuff. Um, but it was so, I, you know, I was preaching what to do and showing examples but there was this, you know, separation, you know, oh yeah, the community relations people. Yeah. You know, take your, you know, key athlete and show up at a ball field. <laughs> it wasn't embedded in the business. To me, sport will be successful when they take a tiny little portion of every single ticket sale and every single ad and see if their athletes would take a tiny little portion of their incredible salaries and though, then put them against things that are really credible and meaningful. You know, I think that's a challenge that I would put out to sport. And, and some of the pushback that we get from people is that, well, purpose doesn't work in sports. That's something that you do if you're a CPMG brand or um, I'm interested as to what your response would be to that. I mean, do you, do you think that the same principles or the same value proposition around purpose that applies to a business applies equally to a sports franchise, for example? Absolutely. I mean, a sports franchise lives and breathes on the support of its fans and the community. I, you know, I just think about, let's go to the hard business thing. Oh, you want to have your, your stadium renovated. What's your relationship with the regulators? You know, if, if you want to ha have, you know, if you want to get some sort of tax concessions, why should you get it? What have you given back to the community? So, you know, and believe me, the whole issue of like plastics, waste, um, fan safety, uh, kids getting, or fans getting drunk and driving home and killing people. I mean, it, it cannot live, sport cannot live in a microcosm. It's, it's, you know, and I love, you know, one of my, um, I, God, we, when I was working, um, with Reebok, um, Mandela, Reebok brought Mandela to Boston and Mandela was doing, and, and we, we did this incredible, you know, pro bono. It was, you know, Mandela on, you know, you know, just, you know, talking to, to millions, you know, in, in Boston. And, you know, Mandela, and if you look at, um, you know, what he did in terms of apartheid and bringing, you know, the fans, the, the blacks and the whites together around sport, that to me was one of the most, it was early, telling moments of the power of sport yep. to bring people together and to, to be as one and to be human and to be caring and kind and to break down barriers. I think that's one of the obligations that sport has. Yeah. Well, that's something that's dear to our hearts. You know, Mandela is probably our, our, our um, the icon that we built 17 sport around and his famous saying sport has the power to change the world. Um, yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's an amazing man. And I, I was fortunate to grow up in South Africa and to experience that whole thing that around rugby oh. that you're talking about. I was there. Yeah. I felt yeah. I, the, the hairs of my legs are, are standing up now. As I you were there. Yeah, I was there. Oh my God. Um, like a, you know, it's a vis every time I think about it, I have a vis visceral reaction because it was just so real and so powerful. 
and he was able to divert you know two groups of people that were at war with each other and yeah. ways to kill each other to be hugging each other in the street and dancing around the new flag and you know the, he really set up the rainbow nation for the next you know five years of its success that it had right. so so it is right. a great example so carol we've run out of time um as always it's been inspiring to listen to you i learn something new every time i listen to you very very inspiring yeah. So thank you, you're, you're, you know, I just think that sport, you know, one of the ads that Nike did, which I just, they do so many wonderful, wonderful things. But, you know, the young man, I don't know if you remember this running, who's, he's quite overweight. And it's yep. just a picture of him just, you know, kind of shuffling along, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think that the tagline was something, you know, if you have a body, you know, you, you're a sport. You can Everyone do a sport. Yeah, that's yeah. it. As an athlete, right? And you know the just the common nature of that. Just you know that could be anybody, versus you know Tom Brady or, or such. Um, so I think that there's athletes. It's a huge shift because athletes are recognizing they have a responsibility, and maybe they will drive their owners and friends, you know, and their leagues and teams more. I know the fans will. Um, it's far beyond just, you know, showing up at the community relations yeah, day of course. or, so you know, fixing off, up a ball field or such. So to close off our, our discussion today, what's your um, warning to sport? Um, if sport doesn't embrace purpose, what happens? Uh, there is going to be, you know, purpose not only does things that are positive, but it does insulate you from crisis and reputational risk. And um, I, I think eSport, look at what eSport's doing. <laughs> you know, and I think traditional sport, if, if it doesn't engage, and, and, and I think, you know, look, you know the, the new Super Bowl and, you know, all the things they're going to do in sustainability. I mean, I think that there's a recognition, just you have to do this. The question is, do you do it in a positive way with innovation and excitement and lots of ideas, or do you do it begrudgingly? Um, yeah. I think that sport and certain leagues and teams and athletes will be, um, could be demonized. And, you know, hopefully, because I, you know, I, I grew up around Bob Kraft and such and the Patriots and all the success of that, that team. It's more, I just pray and hope that, they, that the owners recognize it's more than just making money. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jerry Maguire is not a fictional character. He's alive and well in sport, that's for sure. There you, there you go. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I think that you, know, you have to be courageous. You have to be persistent. Uh, you um, need to engage inside out and outside in. I do not think that consumers and fans will allow sports entities not to engage. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport. How to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals 
committed to doing good while doing well through sport.